You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We're here to tell you about our favorite flower. You're listening to Cornfield Theology. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here, Pastor of Redemption Hill Church, located in the Des Moines metro, and uh, man, I am going to discover my inner botanist today. Yeah. Botany is my favorite thing, because we're going to talk about tulips, right? Yeah, our favorite flower. Our favorite flower. That we hinted at at the beginning. Yeah, you know, it's a funny story. So, um, I've been married 15 years, but obviously before, you know, leading up to marriage, you got to do the wedding planning and things like mm. that. I mean, I didn't. Yeah, well, I... I, I was there, and when my wife asked a question, I responded, you know, my, my sure. fiancé at the time. And uh, there's one thing where I didn't, I didn't wait to, you know, be asked a question. I just said it. I'm like, I want tulips at my wedding. Yeah. And she's like, no. I'm like, are you, come on. I was like, what, I don't ask for anything. Can I just get tulips? No. This is why they say it's not the husband's day. Yeah, it's not the husband's day. It was or a great wedding day. It's the yeah, bride's yeah. day. Yeah. So uh, my favorite flower is to is a tulip. Uh, it, it has been for quite a while, for going on maybe 16, 17 years, and it's my favorite favorite flower because why, Logan? I don't know why it's your favorite flower. It's, it's because it has a nice shape, comes in many colors, it does has come a in great many smell. Oh, I love the smell. There's, there's plenty of reasons to like a tulip. Is and, it perhaps regarded? Well, hold on, hold on. Pella, Iowa is like has a tulip festival. That's true. Which is really fitting because it's a very uh this, this is this is the giveaway now. It's a very reformed area. Yeah. Um Reformed Church of America and RCA and stuff like that. So Yes, we're here to talk about dun, 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 dun. Calvinism. Calvinism. Yep. And, you know, what goes through my mind right now are some people, when they hear Calvinism, they're thinking of, like, the empire. Dun, 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 dun. Sure. Dun. Can we just keep going with this? I mean, please don't. Okay. <laughs> they're just like, that is evil. There's a reason we have Ryan as our singer. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> uh, people bristle, you know, at the idea of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the reason why we're talking about this today, and we're actually doing a two-part podcast on Calvinism, is because at our local church, uh, we've been growing, and a lot of folks who've been coming are, are unfamiliar with uh, Calvinism and Reformed theology more broadly, or they have um, under an understanding of Calvinism that might be um, misguided. Sure. You know, through just perception or... Or, or maybe out of deep conviction too, you know, just, I cannot believe you believe in the doctrine of election, which we'll get into, you know, things like that. You know, it's, I, you know, someone was saying to me, I'm looking at scripture and I just don't see it, you know, and I'm like, okay, so I see it. So let's talk about it. Right. And so this podcast is born out of a deep, deep desire for my heart, pastorally speaking, to help people think well about Calvinism, uh, certainly explain why we're Calvinists and why when we look at scripture, it just pops right out. You just mm. can't miss it. And I'm here because it's one of my favorite topics. And you're here because I needed someone else to talk to. Right? <laughs> Didn't want a monologue. Uh, no, no. No one likes monologues unless you listen to like a few select people. Oh, yeah. And like uh, Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller. I listen to his thing almost every 
day during the week, mm-hmm. the briefing and like Ben Shapiro, you know, sure. kind of a far right guy who's just like intense all the time when he talks. And there's a couple all across the political spectrum. That's a, that's a gift. The monologue's a gift. I don't have that gift, but dialogue, I like that. Mm-hmm. I can roll with that. Funny, I say monologue's a gift, yet I preach every week. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, wait a second, you do a monologue every week. It's the only time in the week where I can speak uninter- without being interrupted. Ah. Because I got kids and my wife, and they love to talk, and you know. All right, Calvin is a man. So we need to make some uh, opening distinctions. Uh, opening beca- remarks. Opening yep. remarks, yeah. One thing we need to make clear, and I already alluded to this, is that Calvinism and Reformed theology are two different ideas related related connected absolutely mm-hmm. so when we say calvinism we're actually think of it this way think of like reformed theology as a bigger umbrella right and within the reformed tradition there are many denominations um there are lots of nuances along the way but generally speaking as you drill down um, with that bigger umbrella of reformed theology in view you do get into calvinism so most calvinists uh, most, almost all Reformed people, typically speaking, are Calvinists. Right. Right. And so uh, when we were talking about this, we're just making that clear distinction. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, because what Calvinism is, so Reformed theology being just really broad, because it can talk about like the covenant of redemption. Right. Or right. it can talk about, um, I mean, I guess there's pedo baptists and credo baptists that are reformed but it gets into the nature of of baptism yep Um, but with calvinism we're specifically talking about an area of theology known as soteriology which is just the study of salvation yeah it's very specific so like for example let's just kind of flesh this out with my own life you know when i became a christian i began to read the bible and i'm like oh man i see the doctrine election all over the place and that takes me down a a particular trajectory of Mm. being a calvinist and for years, I would say, I believe in reformed soteriology. Yeah. That gets to Calvinism. Right. These days, today, I'm, I believe more structurally speaking in reformed theology. Mm-hmm. I've evolved and changed. And, you know, as you read your Bible and you study and you grow. Yeah. Like a Pokemon, you're getting to the higher and higher stages. That means nothing to me. It means something to something uh, or someone. Oh, uh, yeah. If that means something to you, please leave us a note. <laughs> <laughs> I like to I like to know. It would mean something to Logan anyways. It would mean, it would mean a lot to him if you uh, said, yeah, I get that because I'm oblivious. So Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking very specific. And so um, you say you say here in your notes, Calvinism is not the gospel. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I really wanted to highlight that because some, some people can get pretty prideful about Calvinism. And, I, and I've heard this argument like, how can you even be a Christian if you don't believe in Calvinism? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, sh- shoot, even Spurgeon goes so far to say, like, basically Calvinism is the gospel. Um, and I actually t- disagree with that. Do you? You can be a Christian without being a Calvinist. The gospel, I think I think Calvinism speaks a lot towards the nature of salvation. I mm-hmm. do think it's the most proper view of our salvation. But isn't that the most fundamental issue when it comes to Christianity? It is, but there's so salvation is one of the most fundamental issues. Like how but are you, you could saved? Be, how are you saved by believing the gospel? Yeah, by having faith in Jesus Christ that He was your Lord and Savior, died on the cross, was dead and buried, rose again on the third day, and ascended to the right hand of the mm-hmm. Father. Mm-hmm. That's you know, 
that's what you have to believe. When it gets to Calvinism, now we're trying to get into the specifics. So like how does that happen? Right. And then like, so for instance, if you don't believe into the doctrine of election, which we'll, we'll get into, right. Um, you're not going to be like, you're not a non-Christian. Like mm-hmm. you're not a heretic in my, my view saying that election is, is wrong. Right. So that's what I was just trying to get to is like, we don't want to be prideful saying like, you need to be a Calvinist if you're a Christian. I think it's the most correct view and we're going to go into why, but Mm -hmm. it's not essential for salvation. But I would simply say this. And so I I hear what everything you you are saying and I'm not trying, I'm I'm just trying to paint probably the other side of the argument here Mm -hmm. is that if, if salvation is one of the most fundamental doctrines of Christianity, then it's important we get that right. So like, for example, there is a big distinction between a Catholic version of salvation and let's say, let's just go with the Martin Luther Protestant, sure, you know, means of salvation. Like that matters a lot. Oh yeah. So we're not dismissing, you know, the uh, nuances categorically. What we are saying, like generally speaking within the Protestant vein, mm-hmm. there are different perspectives on this. Mm-hmm. Now I could, I could make the argument that, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, that the Arminian view of salvation is just as Catholic as the Catholic view of salvation because it's works based. You add you add one thing to your salvation, and all of a sudden, you you add works, and so I I mean we can get into those nuances, but I, point it point it point point is this before we're getting into all the controversy. Thinking well about this theological mm-hmm. issue is extremely important to Christianity. Yeah. And it's important we go back to Scripture over and over and over again and wrestle with Scripture. And so we're going to do that today. Yep. So, absolute fantastic point. Not in my view, not necessary for salvation, but that doesn't mean we dismiss it. Yeah. It's something that is extremely important to study and understand. Yeah. All right. So, where do you want to begin, man? Do you want to begin well, with talking about our favorite flower again? Yeah. I mean, that's basically all we're yeah. going to talk about today. So, Tulip. we've been using, we've been mentioning tulips. And the reason for that, for those that don't know, is the Calvinism is basically summarized in five points. Correct. And they go into an acronym that spell out TULIP. Correct. And and the name Calvinism comes from John Calvin, mm-hmm. which, by the way, John Calvin did not create the acronym TULIP. Right. Right. It was his followers who came after. I think Theodore Beza. I could be wrong, but some tells me from my church history studies, it was Theodore Beza who's the one who really kind of solidified in response to the remonstrance um, who were propagating Armenianism. Uh, but it didn't come from Calvin, even though you read Calvin in particular, his institutes mm-hmm. and you're just like, it just comes from the page, you know, yeah. you, you see these particular doctrines at work. And wasn't it the canons of Dort that really solidified yeah. each point? Yep. So that's, so that that's part of the three forms of unity. Now uh, this then Dort um, and those particular, I don't know, canons or theological points. So that's true. But TULIP specifically gets into this acronym. You want to begin with that? Yeah. Um, So we'll go through each point, but just to give you a rundown, there's going to be total depravity, Mm -hmm. unconditional election, Mm -hmm. limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. And we may nuance these terms as we go along here. Yeah. So like, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get there. All right, so starting off, um, probably the most foundational points, the one that really starts it all, yeah, is total depravity. And and I'm going to argue, like you take out total depra- depravity, the whole structure falls apart. Mm-hmm. And it, it does does drive me nuts when I run into 
Christians or even pastors who who dismiss total depravity. They don't talk about total depravity. It's not even a Calvinism thing. No. I mean, classical Arminians also it, hold to total depravity. Exactly. So we really need to focus in on that because there's a connecting points here for those who may disagree with the Calvinism as a whole in particular mm. issues of or questions of atonement. Um, but we would generally agree. There's a lot of broad agreement on total depravity, which means what? So total depravity is the doctrine that due to original sin, people, every single person has been fully and wholly corrupted by sin. Right. So we're going back to Genesis three, right? Way back to Genesis three yeah. to the beginning. And this is not to say that man is as sinful as possible. And what I mean is like when a person goes about their day, they are not like constantly trying to do the worst thing possible. Like right. they're not just going around and murdering people, but it right. does mean that every single action that you take, even good ones is corrupted by sin mm -hmm. is affected by their sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. I mm -hmm. mean, there are so many passages in Romans that we can point to. Yeah, and another term for this, and this kind of gets more into, like, what is the result of that total depravity, is it's called total inability as well. Hmm. Basically getting to the point that people are unable to respond positively to the gospel on their right. own. So you've heard me say this before from the pulpit, like, Sean Powers could not make his cold dead heart alive right. my cold dead heart before knowing jesus was a cold dead heart it was dead you need something outside to breathe life onto it in order for there to be life mm -hmm. so it's it's you want to use that kind of metaphor or whatever it, one thing regarding this that's important mm -hmm. and this is delving into a larger conversation within our culture that there is a i had this debate with my father who's yeah. who's um he would describe himself as a democratic socialist, um, amongst many other things, you know, spiritually. Uh, and he has a very positive view of humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, yeah. That people are inherently good nature. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, it struck me one time while he, he and my mom were visiting, you know, maybe two years ago. Well, it was pre-COVID, so I mean, I don't know, three years ago, I don't even remember. And it, it, just, it just occurred to me, like, Dad, one of the fundamental disagreements that we have comes down to how we understand the nature of humanity. I view the nature of humanity as fundamentally evil and sinful. You view it as good. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I bring that up is because how you begin uh, results in where you oftentimes end and how you understand something. Mm -hmm. And so how, how you understand the nature of man being totally sinful, totally depraved matters a ton. And if you take the opposite side of that coin, then you're led into a whole different trajectory and that gets into a bunch of philosophical, political science conversations as well. Right. Sounds like he's taking more of like a humanist position totally. on the nature of man. Totally. Totally humanist. And that, that affects his politics and that affects how he views the world in general. There was a book I was reading. Oh, I'm struggling to find the name. I think it's like, what if like God or some, it's on the nature of like suffering. It's sure. by Randy Alcorn. Oh, okay. Um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he mentions on the topic of like total depravity, mm -hmm. um, that there is basically like a restraining hand of God in that. Like if we were to live out our sinful desires to the fullest, mm. everyone would be as terrible as Hitler. Yeah. But it's by the grace of God, the common grace of God, that that's basically held back. <laughs> yeah. That's why we say we're not as sinful as we possibly could be. Yeah. So he did a book called uh, The Goodness of God. Sounds like that's on suffering. Probably, yeah. Just referencing folks. 
Yeah. So like where you start matters. Mm-hmm. And like, I would say to this, if, if God allowed me to fulfill all my desires, do you think those desires are going to benefit me and benefit my fellow man? No, because I'm selfish. And that's one of the fundamental things we just need to understand about humanity. Apart from the grace of God, especially for Christians, we realize this. Apart from the grace of God, we are self selfish and sinful to the core mm-hmm. and left to ourselves. We're gonna we're gonna rot so many paths of destruction. Oh yeah. You know, behind us. So much so much more pain. I, I tell us the streets all the time, without if I wasn't a Christian, I don't know what I would be. Oh yeah. I mean I'd be, I know what I'd be. You'd be an anarchist. I'd be a nihilist. A nihilist, yes. Yeah, I, yeah maybe me too, actually. I'd be in politics too, but that's another topic for the day. <laughs> I try to be in politics. Anyways, so total depravity matters. What else on this particular, on the tea of tulip, of our favorite flower? Well, so we've talked about of like what we believe about, you know, what tea means. Mm-hmm. But it's important we go back to the scriptures because we don't want to be believing anything that's not in the Bible. Um, one scriptural passage I would like to point you guys to is actually one that Sean already mentioned, which was Ephesians 2.5. Mm. It's that idea that we are dead in our trespasses yeah, yeah. and sins. I didn't reference it when I said it, but good. It's good that you reference it. Good. Yep. Um, and that's extremely important because it's that idea. It's man in sin is not a wounded man. Mm. You know, he's he's not struggling to find God. He's just dead. Mm-hmm. He, you know, um, there was a rapper. His name Shylin. Uh, he has a song. Uh, I don't like rap. Yeah, well, but he has a great. He he mentions like. People view us as being like drowning in the ocean, you know, trying to tread water and God throws us a rope no, no. to try and save us. I hate no, that. no, no, no. You're that. dead at the bottom of the ocean. Yes. I, I've, you know, when early on in my faith and early on in preaching, frankly, but I didn't have my thoughts as crystallized as they are now. I, you know, I've used that analogy like you're, you know, you were in the ocean struggling and God throws you a life draft and you grab onto that life raft and da, da, da. And then I began to think about that more and I'm like, that's totally false. Yeah. Like I, I don't have the ability to grab the life raft. And to no. your point you just made, I'm at the bottom of the ocean dead. As it says in Ephesians two, Ephesians two, five dead in my trespasses. Mm-hmm. And if anything, if, if, if in our sinfulness, if God were to throw us a life raft, we would swim down into the ocean to like, die <laughs> oh i know i know I, like, totally without god i'm like oh well, let's let's go down there why because there's there's more pain and destruction down there and mm-hmm. i can fulfill my desires in that cold dead place right right that's where the light that's where the light of the gospel can't shine let's go to the, let's go to the darkest corner of the world and live out my desires mm-hmm. um another good passage i think is i mean specifically romans 3 9 through 18 but honestly Romans 1 through 3 because Paul just lays out the universal sin of man you see that conclusion in Romans 3 9 through 18 because he says like what can we say then like no one is righteous no No, not not one one. yeah you know their throats are an open grave (laughs) which is wow visual (laughs) yeah I don't know how there are other points of Calvinism that are more contested Mm-hmm. than this one. But I will say this. I don't know how you can be a reader of the Bible and not, excuse me, come to the conclusion that the Bible speaks about total depravity. Mm-hmm. There is no other conclusion in my mind. And I'm not trying to act hawkish. I'm not trying to act arrogant. You know, I'm just trying to be an honest Bible reader. Like, I don't know how else I, you can't get to any other conclusion other than that. 
I love that you're saying that now. And I'm like, I got more verses for you, though. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> more Wait. verses. Uh, Psalm 51, 5. Behold, <laughs> I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. me. Yeah. It's that idea. Like, even from birth, you you are sinful. You have that sinful nature. Um, Romans 5, so, 12. So, hold on. Back, back up. Psalm 51. Right. David pens that. Yeah. David pens that after he has committed the grave sins of sleeping with Bathsheba, a married woman, and then killing her husband Uriah. Yeah. And then even David knows, like, okay, not only am I a sinner where I stand, but this thing has some roots. It goes right. back. Yeah, from from his very origin, he has been brought forth. In Which iniquity. totally strips away some of the perception we have about, you know, King David. Yeah. King David, this shepherd boy, he was last in the order of all of his brothers. Mm-hmm. No one ever thought of him when Samuel came by. You know, seeing like, hey, I need to see your sons, Jesse. And then, you know, it's like, what? well, no, you're not going to, you're not going to like uh, go to David, right? You know, and so we have such a mm. romantic view perhaps of, of David, but no, yeah, it's, it got, hey. it got, it went south. Okay. Small rabbit trail. Yeah, it's fine. I think the reason why we have such a sort of exalted view of so many people in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament with the stories uh-huh. is the kids' Bibles. Yeah. I'd agree because they don't deal with the messiness yeah. really of each, each person, like no. the old Testament, even those people that are like heroes of the faith or covered in like Hebrews. Oh, what's the Hebrews passage that goes through like a list. Oh, of Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11. Like all those people are very messy people. Mm-hmm. Like Abraham's highlighted. He's one of the greatest people in all of the Bible. And um, the guy tried to sell off his wife as being his sister. Cause he yeah, didn't want to oh, be killed. And Hagar. Hello. Uh, so this is making the point of depravity too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, my goodness. So anyway, what else you got in total depravity? Um, I also wanted to point out Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things oh, yeah. and desperately wicked. Yep. Uh, and then finally, one of my favorite passages is actually Romans. My eight. favorite passage is about your sin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's good to reflect on your no, sin. It is. Like you realize what you've been saved from. Yeah, amen. I think Romans five or sorry, Romans eight, five through eight is a beautiful passage on sin. Um, and it's interesting because it comes, it's comes right after that. Like, um, hmm. uh, one of the favorite passages of many people, which is, uh, why do I always blank when I'm on these podcasts? On these podcasts, there's uh, f- no condemnation for yeah, those. There's who are therefore in now no condemnation for those who are. And then the what reason why I love that verse is therefore there's no now the word now is in there noon is really important. Yeah. Go ahead. So wonderful, wonderful at the beginning Absolutely. of Romans eight, but in the middle of Romans eight, Paul starts to contrast where you were as a non-believer being in the flesh yeah. and where you currently are being in the spirit, and he says a lot of important things. Mm. Um. The key point is in verse 8 of Romans 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Mm. And I think the NASB goes um, so far as to say that um, those in the flesh cannot do what is pleasing to God. Right. The gospel is pleasing to God. If you're in the flesh, you won't believe it. Like, that's yeah. how corrupt yeah. you are. Yeah. So. You know, I'll take that verse from, from Romans and I'll flip back to Ephesians 2. And this is fresh in my mind because we had preached through Ephesians uh, in 2021. And here's, here's, here's Ephesians 2, verse 1, going through, I don't know, verse 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. We kind of talked about that already. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. So it's describing for us what you once were. 
mm-hmm. the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And again, we preached on that and kind of fleshed out what is sons of disobedience. What does that, what does that all mean? In verse three, among who you, we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, mm-hmm. living for yourself. You do you, right? Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were once, the way Paul says this, by nature, children, children of wrath. wrath. I spent a lot of time talking about what it means to be a child of wrath, because that gets contrasted later with being a child of God, right? Mm-hmm. Being a son or daughter, like the rest of mankind. That's That gets you to, through verse three. I think I spent you know just one sermon talking about those three mm-hmm. verses. Verse four, but God. Ah, but God. Beautiful. It is beautiful. And then it just talks about being rich in mercy, you know, with great love in which he loved us. We were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive in Christ. Mm-hmm. Absolutely stunning. And then along with that, I'm just, see, you're in Ephesians, my head's in Romans. I'm thinking about like, so even Ephesians mentions you were previously in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Romans 8 also talks about like, in the flesh, you were hostile to God. Right. So that's what I was getting at before, where it's like, even if it was, you know, you were treading water and God were to throw your life raft, mm-hmm. you're actually hostile to him. You would sneer at the life raft and right. die deeper into the right. water. Right. That's how totally depraved we were or are. Well, we're still remaining sin. Right. There's still remaining sin. But, but the grace of the have... gospel, light, ha- light has come on into the darkness to reveal what is there. Right. And that's sanctification, right? Yeah. Oh, those nuances. But yes. Oh, yeah. The, no, way, no. the way we were, Points made. you know, is not just not just dead, but also hostile. Yeah, exactly. So so the, the difference isn't like, you know, is sin all of a sudden gone? No. It's by the power of the gospel, through the grace, mercy, and love of Christ, we grow in our relationship with God. And as we grow in our relationship with God, light continues to shine upon those dark places. Mm-hmm. Light was absent prior to knowing God. You know, now the light is there. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow, grow mm-hmm. basically, and more and more into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Any other implications that you have for, uh, for total depravity? Well, there's a lot of implications. Oh, yeah. But uh, the question is, how long do we want the podcast to be? So I would say let's move on. I think that big that big implication of society, you know, how you view yourself and how you view fellow man really is going to shape your view of the world. We call that worldview. Um, that's really significant. And yeah. so uh, it's good news that within Christianity and Protestantism more specifically, uh, there's, some, there's more uh, unanimity around this particular doctrine. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Obviously. For sure. But we go from one that is not as hotly contested to uh, Boom. into the weeds. Into the fire. All right. Cover T now onto you, which is unconditional, unconditional election. The idea that God has predestined those who will be saved in accordance with his own will and not by the actions so, of men. So let's take the definition um, here of the, the term unconditional election and turn it around. Sure. Conditional election. Right. Which would mean that your election is conditioned upon something else. You, yes, something your you own do works, use. you continuing to do things in a particular way to prove yourself. This, this, this conditional and unconditional stuff can get to the covenants too. We have unconditional mm-hmm. covenants. We have conditional covenants. Same type of ideas going on here. Yep. And typically with conditional election, the idea is that your election is based off of your faith. Correct. You were elected because you were having faith. Right. But we're, um, but we're saying unconditional election. You brought nothing to the table. Go back to point one, the T, mm-hmm. because you had nothing to offer. Right. 
Can we, can we move on? Do we got to flesh this one out too? <laughs> no, we got to flesh it out. <sighs> all, right, all right. People are going to have questions. And, and also, if you start to have like objections or you're thinking about other scriptures, that's what our part two is going to be about. Mm-hmm. Is about. Good point. Yeah. Talking about those questions that absolutely, absolutely remain. So I just want to point that out because I don't think we mentioned it. Yeah. We said it was a two-parter. We didn't say why. But yeah, we want to deal with the objections, mm-hmm. which means if you're listening to this and you're like, I have objections, let us know. We would love to take it up. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so unconditional election. Um, there's nothing that, uh, that you did that made God choose, cho- uh, choose, choose you. Yeah. Struggling over my words again. Scriptural supports. Uh, back to Ephesians yeah, and Romans. It. Yeah, let's go to Ephesians 1. <laughs> yep, Ephesians 1, uh, verses 4 through 5. Uh, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that he should be holy, and, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us yep. uh, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. Mm-hmm. This was actually one of the um, key texts uh, to me starting to believe Calvinism because okay. I did not start out as, as a Calvinist. Right. I had an argument with a friend for seven days. Seven days? Yeah. We, That's the pure number in the Bible, seven. I, well, it's interesting. So I was... I was. Um, did you rest on the seventh day? Uh, no. Oh, okay. No, I was still fighting. All right. Uh, but we debated for like seven hours, seven days because <laughs> I was at work and we just text over uh, Facebook Messenger. Um, but my idea, he mentioned predestination and I was like, predestination isn't in the Bible. Yeah. And then he points me to this text where the word predestined is used. Um, in this text, we see one, the existence of predestination and we see what that predestination is according to. It is just according to the purpose of God's will. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's good. So we went at Redemption Church located here in the Boyne Metro. We, uh, preached through Ephesians, like I already mentioned, and we went really slow in this section of Ephesians because there's so much doctrine. We really wanted to talk about what does it mean? You know, the, the Greek word there's electos for mm-hmm. chosen. What does it mean to be predestined? How are these things connected? Mm-hmm. What are, what are the objections to them? You know, really trying to parse out what we're getting at. Yeah. And Paul doesn't stop there in Ephesians no, one. He, he actually uses it twice. Yeah. If you move on to verse 11, you read in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, things according, according to the counsel of his will. Yeah. And you know, all, and this also falls into a greater framework mm-hmm. um, of reformed theology called the covenant of redemption. Right. Where uh, before the creation of the world, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, existed in love, mm-hmm. and um, basically, in, in before the creation of the world, this was the plan yep. put forth. There's never been a plan B. Exactly. Here's the here's a text that um, early on in my faith. Mm-hmm. Oh man, going back twenty years ago now. Oof, been a Christian for about twenty years. My goodness. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I only became a Christian when I was 18. Yeah. So. I was 22. I'm 2022. 20, oh my goodness. You're old. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, it's funny before moving on. Yeah. It's my text that really made an impact on me. I was shoveling this morning because we got some snow. Mm-hmm. Not as much snow as they promised. Weather terrorists. But anyways, I'm on, I, I hurt my neck and I'm on a riding tractor, garden tractor because <laughs> I live in the country and you just can't have a snowblower. And from just riding on a tractor, I hurt my neck. Dang, dude. Oh, you're just like, that's getting old. I was just thinking, like, this might hurt. But, like, you were like, ah, oh, 20 years ago, I became a Christian. I was like, I was five. Yeah, you're five. Oh, the knife goes. Uh, I guess that means wisdom. I don't know. But here's the here's the text that made a massive impact on my life. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of beginning to turn the wheels on toward Calvinism, it's from the Gospel of John. Yeah. And if you've ever read the Gospel of John through, it is amazingly uh, Calvinistic. Yeah. It's and it, what's interesting is it's the evangelistic uh, yeah. gospel too. Like people usually think of it as like John the three. evangelist and or, John three sixteen for God yeah. so loved the world. Or it's the first. It's yeah. the first book you recommend someone read in the Bible. Exactly. Oh yeah, and you get verses like this, and this is this you know, and all over the gospel of John, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Mm-hmm. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. They will never perish. Mm-hmm. We're getting into another doctrine here. Um, and, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Mm-hmm. And then elsewhere within the gospel of John, uh, John 10, they will come. Jesus says they will come. When I call mm-hmm. them, they will come. You hear that imperative in there. They will. It's like it's not like they're going to make a decision themselves. Sure. No, they will come. Right. They will hear my voice, and the moment they hear my voice, they will come to me. Like what? I mean, how else do you read that? I mean, I read it for a different doctrine. Well, yeah, the doc. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has implications on yeah. many doctrines. Yeah, I mean, you can you can parse that out and be like, it, it has it has ties to unconditional election. It's like mm-hmm. that idea of you are chosen mm-hmm. and you will come. Um, I also like uh, Romans eight twenty nine, which is a little bit more of a contested text because yeah. um, some Arminians that don't hold to uh, unconditional election will use this as well. But Romans eight twenty nine says, "Whom he foreknew, he predestined." predestined yeah. um, and then also talk about predestination. One of the really strong texts is just Romans nine. Yeah, uh, the whole thing is steeped in this unconditional election. Um, because Paul actually in there specifically handles a lot of objections that people will have because of it. And in part two, we'll be going to Romans nine to talk about some of those. Objections. Oh yeah, for sure. But the key point is that, you know, in that text, it just speaks of that God choose whom he wills because he wills it. Right. So that is just unconditional election. The idea that God chooses out of his own will. And not because of anything we have done. And let's talk about some implications of, of unconditional election. Go for it. Here's one that comes to mind right away. And there was a, a guy at church who approached me um, realizing for the first time we're a Calvinistic church. Sorry. Yeah, and that was good. Um, you preached and you laid out, you know, Calvinism really beautifully and clearly. And it spawned a lot of good discussion. And, you know, he said something that, you know, I, we were able to dialogue around. And I was really grateful for the conversation. But I was able to say in this conversation that for those who are Calvinists and those who hold to this particular doctrine, mm-hmm. we should be the most humble and gracious people in the world. Amen. Because you realize... It's a shame also. The stigma is that we're not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of arrogant Calvinists. Mm-hmm. Like you, you go on Twitter for more than five minutes and you follow the right people. You can get really frustrated really quickly. Um, just kind of the intellectual pride mm-hmm. that exists. But... Really, what should result in this, ideally, is that like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Yeah. I can't do this apart from God. Yeah. So How humbling is that? Yeah. Unconditional election sh- on its own should just bring you to your knees, your knees Absolutely. in humility. That there is, there's not like, I wasn't smart enough to become a Christian. Yeah. Like, I didn't make the right decision because I was better than someone. God chose me because he willed it, not because of anything innate in me. Like I didn't deserve salvation. Right. He could have just left me for dead and I would deserve all of that. Right. Exactly. And it should lead us to worship. Mm. Honestly, 
it should lead us to just a, a gratitude of the heart that pours forth in, in worship of our great God. Thank you so much for what you have done for me. You gave me the faith to believe. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't muster up the faith myself because my de- my heart was dead in my trespasses and sins. Mm-hmm. It had to have been a work of God. And so I uh, just, you know, talk about implications. That's a massive one. It should humble the heart. It should humble how we speak, um, our tone. Mm. And when we think about other Christians who would disagree with us, or when we think about humanity in general, mm-hmm. like and it should give us a fire for, for evangelism as well. Right. I mean, that's one of the other misconceptions is like, if you're a Calvinist, why do missions? If you believe in unconditional election and you know, God does all the electing, which he does, why would you do missions? Right. Well, go read, you know, the rest of the scripture, you know, yeah. called the, that's, you know, Matthew 28, for example, go there for make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit, mm-hmm. you know, teaching and, uh, teaching them commandments. So actually it's the opposite. And even when you look at church history and we look at the history of missions, you, what, what do you find? It's the reform, it's the reform community in addition to the Catholic church in a, in a different way. But in the Protestant realm, it's the reform community doing the missions. And it's, it's actually those who do not believe mm-hmm. in Calvinism who aren't as active specific in particular, I should say when you get into liberal Christianity. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a whole different conversation for another mm-hmm. day. They certainly don't believe in unconditional election and they certainly didn't care two cents about missions unless it was socially related and not gospel related. Yeah. I mean, shoot, since we're on the topic of evangelism and unconditional election, yeah. unconditional election gives you such a hope for evangelism. Cause like I, so I was in one of my schools, I was actually required to do evangelism and people were legitimately worried about what they were going to say. Like, could they screw this up? Like, if I say this the right way, someone could get saved. If I say this the wrong way, they won't. That's putting a lot of pressure on yourself that evangelism is on me and what I say. And if I do it correctly with unconditional election, you know that you are free to preach the gospel. You have to be faithful and you just trust God that he is going to bring those who are of his flock into the fold. There's a, there's a story in, um, Acts 18, uh, when you're in Acts 18 at this point, we're talking about the apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. And so he's in Corinth, right? Yeah. And, um, he's out, he's preaching the gospel, which by the way, you read the apostle Paul and there's no, he's one who's penned Ephesians and Romans. And it's like, all right, there's your Calvinism. But we get into, um, kind of the middle part of, of Acts 18 and Paul's like, what do I do? Do I go preach in the city of Corinth? What do I do here? And so we read this in verse nine. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you or harm you. So God's basically like, Hey, I got you. But then, um, the Lord says this for I have many in this city who are my people. Mm-hmm. Like what God is communicating to Paul is like, you go preach. People are going to respond. Mm-hmm. People, I mean, Paul didn't know like who's going to respond. He didn't know if he was going to be there with it. You know, if he's, if he was going to die, but God says, no, when you preach, people will respond to the gospel call. Mm-hmm. They're, they're already there. And kind of getting into some nuances and semantics, God's saying that there's some of my people are there. That means that there's others who are not. What do you mean? So he's clearly talking about oh. people that are not saved. Correct. Some of those people The unelected, are, if you want to yeah, say it that way. Yeah. Some of those people are already God's people. They just haven't been brought and saved yet. So here's an objection. This, you're, you're bringing up a good point. An objection. Let's just deal with this one right here and we'll deal with it in part two. Some people would say that it's not loving of God to elect some 
people and not other people? Your response. I have a response, but do you want to take a crack at it? Yeah. Um, so for me, that is demanding God's grace. Correct. You have no rights to demand God's grace. Correct. Um, and we can go back to point one, by the way, which is right. none of us deserve to be elected. Mm-hmm. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve his mercy. As a matter of fact, what we do deserve is He's his God. holy wrath. His absolute holy wrath. Because of our sin. Yeah. That's what we deserve. And the fact that he chose even some of us mm-hmm. is quite staggering. Yeah. And the idea that like, oh, it's not loving for God to choose some and not others. Um, you're also forgetting that God is not just love. God is love, but he's also just. Mm-hmm. And God needs to punish sin. Correct. Like if God were to just forgive all people everywhere for like just freely, like no reason. Yeah. He's actually leaving a lot of people that are hurt and damaged by sin and letting those perpetrators of those sins go unpunished. Mm-hmm. You know, God loves justice. We're getting as into well. atonement here now. Yeah, you see getting, how all the points are interrelated, right? Yeah, you're you're getting into appointment, but God God is just and He's loving. Correct. So it is, it's not unloving for God to demonstrate His justice on those who are wicked. Right. So and this this also gets into the doctrine of reprobation, which we won't delve into. It's um, also oh, that made sense. I was kind of rambling. <laughs> that's all right. No, no, no. It's good. It's a good ramble. Some some rambles are good. And that was a good one. So uh, that was point number two, unconditional election. And then number three is... We are blazing I th- through this. <laughs> I think... Yeah. I don't right. know if we are blazing through no, it. I'm we're just... not blazing. We're, 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 it's like a snail. Hey, hey, if it makes you feel any better, I was talking to someone who listens to our podcast, which are usually around the 50-minute hour mark. Yeah, yeah. Our podcast is actually typically short for podcasts. So, well, yeah. when you compare to Joe Rogan, who goes like three hours. I mean, most podcasts, if you think, all right, so you've already mentioned Ben Shapiro. Um, He's around the 50 minute mark to an hour for one. But if you pay, you get more. That's true. So like he does multiple hours of content. If you want to become a subscriber, should we we pitch a show the way he pitches it? The way the daily wire pitches itself is quite remarkable (laughs) there. Anyways, um, moving on. Number three, limited atonement, which is probably the most hotly contested, uh, point of all of so this. when i was at seminary southern uh, southeastern baptist theological seminary located in wake forest north, north carolina raleigh durham area please sponsor um yeah please sponsor <laughs> <laughs> so uh my um president there if i'm not mistaken he said that he's a four-point calvinist mm-hmm. which makes no sense but i digress and the, the issue the one point he took issue with umbrage with was limited atonement right Yep. So when you're talking about four-point Calvinists, it basically means that they're going to agree with everything besides this one. Mm-hmm. So what this one is, is that Christ died only for the elect. Right. That's that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean. Um, and if you think about it, it's this idea that the work of the three persons of the Trinity is unified. Right. God the Father is electing a select group of people and Christ is dying for those people. Mm-hmm. There is no people that Christ died for who are not going to be saved. Um, so it's it's tough because that means there's some people that know the cross was not for. But do we have scripture to support that well, idea? Yeah. So a helpful way to think about this, okay. I'm going to get to the scripture here, is that in the Reformation era... And moving onward, they debated this particular point more than I think any other of the five points of Calvinism 
I mean, let's be honest. The cross is the central part of our faith. I'm glad they took atonement, the time. Atonement, right? Yeah, atonement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so many people have used this phrase, and I tend to like it. It has some flaws, but it helps help us to understand um, what was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. The phrase is sufficient for all, mm-hmm. efficient for, for the elect. So sufficient su- with an S, sufficient for all, but efficient with an E for the elect meaning could have Jesus died and atoned for everyone's sins. Could he have done that? Yes. Yes. He could have. Yeah. Did he clearly not? Yeah. Clear. I mean, if you say he did, mm-hmm. we're talking about universalism pretty darn quickly. Yeah. An Armenian would contest that, but you, you see how the pivot is not that, not that great. Right. If the cross, if, if the atoning work of Jesus Christ at Calvary is for every single person in the world, every single individual, and the cross is the propitiation for sins, that meaning that Jesus propitiation is, and expiation. Yep. Yeah. Jesus is taking on our sin and taking the punishment for that sin. Then since punishment has already been dealt out, mm-hmm. everyone would be saved. That would be my argument. Right. And we can definitely get into that more when we get into the objections. Right. Um, but that's just one of the reasons why we're like, it, yes, it is sufficient, but if it was sufficient for everyone and, and effective for everyone, then everyone's saved. Mm-hmm. It's the reform, the Calvinist position that it is actually only affected, efficient for the elect. For the elect. And so John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep for his sheep and when you really explore the shepherd sheep dynamic that metaphor in scripture that becomes really powerful Mm -hmm. Uh, jesus as the good shepherd did not lay his life down for the wolves right right i mean that's that's part of that whole metaphor you got sheep and wolves he he laid down his life for his sheep yep and that's not a metaphor that he uses once but twice because in john 10 14 through 15 he says i'm the good shepherd shepherd I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. So that's interesting because mm-hmm. it's comparing the relationship of the sheep with Jesus to his relationship with the father and that intimate relationship. Yeah, very intimate. And he says again, I lay down my life for the sheep. Yeah. And, and this is very consistent with the Old Testament too. Mm-hmm. Like God had an elect people, a chosen people. Yeah. Um, religious Israel, right? Was his people. Was his people. The right. the um the Babylonians was not his was people. not his people the Assyrians were not his people now was God calling his people to be a blessing to the nations absolutely absolutely is that still uh, God's desire for the church today mm-hmm. absolutely we want to be a blessing to our communities to the nations we want to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ yeah the fullness of the nations will come in. Yeah, I mean, we should we should have another podcast on the relationship between God and Israel. Yeah, it's, yeah. because like even God Man. points out that like yeah. really His people is the spiritual Israel yeah, that yeah, is yeah. chosen, right? Because there's people in Israel that are Israelites, but not ethnic, yeah, yeah ethnic, ethnic Israelites, Israel, yeah, yeah. but not really His people. But that's a that's a another huge podcast. Yeah, yeah. So so the way I help people think about that, but it does connect with you know God choosing and and choosing a very specific people. And then this gets into limited atonement is that there's always been a people of God. That's the mm-hmm. way I kind of tie in, you know, old Testament, new Testament, old covenant, new covenant is that there's always been a people of God. Yep. From 
beginning to end. And a quick a quick objection that I want to handle here is some yeah. people might think that like, okay, Christ dies for his sheep, but everyone is his sheep. That mm-hmm. that sort of idea, the idea that maybe he won't save some of his sheep or fail to save yeah, his sheep. Sure. Um, but John ten twenty six actually says that those that do not believe Jesus or they do not believe because they're not his sheep. Mm-hmm. So he's making a very clear distinction that there are people, individuals that are not his sheep, those who do not believe. So Christ dies for his sheep, mm-hmm. specifically those who do believe. Right. So. And here's my favorite Christmas passage that makes the same point for limited atonement. It's Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son. She be Mary, the Virgin Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people which indicates there is a people that are not his people. Mm-hmm. He will save his people from their sins. Right. There's Again, a, there's a limiting effect here. Right. Of the cross. Yep. Or we'll just say it's particular. Yeah, a particular. It's fine. It's specific. Yeah. Um, and then also, if you look at Isaiah 53, one of our favorite texts for communion, mm-hmm. it actually gets specific as well, talking about how this suffering servant will die for God's people. Yeah. So. And, and again, again, if you're listening to this and you're like, I object, hang with us in part two as well. Listen, mm-hmm. listen to our argument and here in part one, you know, we'll address the objections in part yep. two because people will go, you know, what do we do? John three sixteen for God to so love the world. world that he gave his one only son. What do we mean by world? Does that mean all mm-hmm. the people within the world? Is that just generally speaking that God loved his created world? Mm-hmm. And so he made a path of salvation for his sheep. We'll talk about all those objections. Yeah. So. Um, and then uh, final text for consideration, one that maybe is not used uh, so often for limited atonement, but Ephesians 5.25. It's a great text. I'm glad you went here because when we think of limited atonement, we're very much thinking about like individual people. Mm-hmm. But when you when you really start delving into the shape of, of scripture and the dynamic between Christ and his people, it's more like Christ in the church. Right. Yeah. I mean, Americans are very individualistic. Yeah. Um, so we don't think of like our communities as often, but yes, Ephesians 525. And just for context, um, it's talking about the relationship between the husband and the wife. Right. So the husband is supposed to love his wife. Like Jesus loves the church and laid laid himself. And Ephesians 525 says Christ loved the church. How he gave himself up for For her. Yep. For her. Excuse me. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, it's that bride and bridegroom dynamic mm. going on there. So this is just a very specific text stating on the nature of Christ's love for the church. Mm-hmm. Specifically, he died for the sure. church. Yeah, that's good. Um, and that's interesting as well because, of course, Christ died before, you know, quotation marks, the church really formed. Right. So. Yeah, a little ecclesia action here in mm. church. That's good. I, I think we got, got into some really important... There's other texts we could use, but for the sake of time, I would say if you're trying to think through limited atonement, uh, go to Ephesians 5.25, Matthew one twenty one, Isaiah 53.8, John 10. Just read all of John 10, actually. Just read all of John. <laughs> yeah, all of John, but John <laughs> 10 John. in particular. We, talk, we see that sheep-shepherd dynamic. Mm-hmm. All right, number four. We're, got, we're at the eye of Tulip. Yeah. Let's, rev- let's review. What's T? Total, Total depravity. depravity. U... Unconditional, unconditional election, election L limited, limited atonement. atonement and now we're at I irresistible grace, grace. Yeah. yep and also I want to point out and I mentioned this uh, in the sermon that I did on Ephesians uh, it was 1 13 through 14 13 14 yeah you know we, we've talked about the covenant of redemption and the works of each person of the holy trinity yep in salvation mm-hmm. um, election God the father 
mm-hmm. limited atonement, God, God the, the Son. Son, irresistible grace now, yeah. God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's good. So irresistible grace, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, draws the elect to saving faith to God without fail. Yeah. You know, when I pray for people who do not know the Lord, mm-hmm. I pray very specifically about the irresistible grace of God drawing people to him. Mm-hmm. Like that, th- th- I mean, if we're talking about how does your theology shape your prayers, how does scripture shape your prayers, in- include that, you know, make it very clear. It is God who does the work through the power of the Holy Spirit drawing people um, to him. Right. So some texts. All right, some texts. Uh, back to John. Again, again, if, you, if so good. Gospel of John, if you want to know what Reformed theology or Calvinism is all about, read the Gospel of John. John 6 and John 10, it's just the whole thing. No joke. John six thirty seven. all that the Father gives me will come to me. Yeah. All, Not probably. Will. Yep. We talked a little will. bit about that earlier, yeah. Yep. They will come. They will hear my voice and they will Come. come. Uh, John six forty four. And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a little bit talking about total depravity. They can't come unless the Father uh, draws his elect to Christ, right? Um, by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So they cannot come. Yeah. And I will raise them up on the last day. And then, of course, there's also Romans 8.30, going back to Romans. So before, I mentioned with uh, predestination, you know, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This is getting into what's called the golden chain of redemption. Yes. You know, Romans 8 goes on. Golden chain originally brought forth by William Perkins. Anyways, go ahead. I know it from R.C. Sproul, but he's probably... He stole it from William Perkins. Yeah, R.C. Sproul's cooler. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, scrolls the bomb. Go ahead. All right. Uh, so, you know, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Uh, Romans 8.30 continues and says, mm-hmm. and those whom he predestined, he also called. And mm-hmm. those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Yeah. So just talking about, like, that calling, it's not like, it's not saying, like, uh, you know, those who he predestined, he's also called. And if they respond, he will justify and then also glorify. No, he calls and yeah. they will be justified yeah. and they will be glorified. Yep. There is no, um, what's the word? Not certainty, uncertainty about yeah, it. Yeah. There we go. Right. Got to just put the un at yeah, the end yeah. of the words. The, the neg- negative on it. Yeah. Um, so that chain is just unbroken. So, And this has implications. Let's get, just get to our last point here. Okay. We'll get to the last point, which is then preservation of the saints. And those two really, you know, go together, irresistible grace and preservation mm-hmm. of the saints. And you might've heard of it as perseverance yeah. or preservation of the saints. I prefer, um, preservation Yep, because it's God doing the per- preserving. Per- preserving. I guess. Yeah. Right. You know, but I, I hear the argument the other way too. I mean, yeah. I mean, perseverance Nuanced. goes to Paul talking about like running the race, like Correct. an athlete. So they're both accurate. We just prefer preservation. One's more focused on like the sanctification process. Mm-hmm. You know, we're running, like you say, we're running the race. We're going to, you know, persevere till the end. The other, other idea is that God is the one doing actually the work at mm-hmm. the end of the day. Yes, you are, you are working out your salvation with fear and troubling, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah. So preservation of the saints. So irresistible grace, God draws people to salvation. Preservation of the saints. Those who God has saved will not fall away from mm-hmm. the faith. Yep. So you become saved, you're going to stay saved. And objections we'll deal with on this point mm-hmm. are those who may grow up in the church, made a profession of faith, been baptized, and then they walk away. Um, I can 
unfortunately tell you countless pastors and give names and stories about pastors who preach the gospel Sunday yeah. after Sunday. They've completely walked away from the faith and got a completely different worldview. Like when those stories, those anecdotal stories flood the mind, you look at this particular doctrine, like how can that be? Yeah. How can you believe you know? that with so many real world yeah. examples? And, it was, and, I'm, and, I, and I sympathize with that and I don't want to dismiss those stories, mm-hmm. those anecdotal stories. Uh, but when we get to the objections, we're going to have to have a category for apostasy, mm-hmm. which Hebrews you know, brings up and we'll have to think through that pretty well mm-hmm. because the stories are real. The people are real and the heartbreak is it goes deep. Yeah. I mean, shoot, I've just got out of seminary and like seminary is like called the graveyard of faith. Yeah. You know, right. there's a lot of people that even go to seminary to study the word of God yeah. and they come out atheistic yeah. or agnostic at least. Right. Um, which is just so sad. I kind of want to, since you brought it up, we'll yeah. deal with it again in part two, but I do want to mention, you know, if you have those questions about those that have left the faith, um, first John two nineteen. those uh, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Yeah. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not it's of us. It's a really us. helpful text. It's an extremely helpful text. And I would say yeah. really key to understanding how can people leave. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, but it is a part of living in this sinful world. It's a part of battling sin, and if you've never, if if you've never been truly saved, it's the obvious result is that you've been deceiving yourself for whatever reasons, and eventually you walked away. Mm-hmm. And um, you know the reason why one would continue and say, you know, being a quote Christian, are, are numerous. You know, like yeah. I said, you grow up in the church, you feel social pressure to go to church and say the prayer and do the thing. Or you're reliant on the community. You're reliant on the community. Um, you know, it's kind of a crutch for you. You know, it's therapeutic deism type of thing. Yeah. I mean. uh, there's various reasons. And the question does become, has the light of the gospel truly been shed upon your cold, dead heart where, you know, the gospel isn't about therapeutic deism. Mm-hmm. It's not about doing the rituals and the things but it's about worship at the end of the day. Right. Um, R.C. Sproul, I think, actually kind of shines a light on on this. In a little bit of a different context, he he talks about, like, there's the seeker-sensitive church, this mm-hmm. idea that there's people that want uh, wants to seek God and yep. find God. And it also ties into total depravity as well. You know, how, how do we understand those who seek God? Yeah. The idea is, is that they're not actually seeking God. They're seeking the benefits of God. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and so when we see those people fall away from the faith, it's not that they had faith in God truly. Mm-hmm. It's they had some sort of faith or some sort of reliance on the benefits that God seems yeah. to give. Yeah. That's so, a good way to put it. Um, scriptural support though for the Yeah. That's preservation. the most important thing. What does, what does scripture say regarding this? We can <laughs> we pontificate all day. Well, no, no, we're making the, we want to get back to the point. Like mm-hmm. we are truly want to be students of the Holy scripture Mm-hmm. And take our cues and create our the- theological positions from Holy Scripture. Yep. So, where, where, are, we, where are we going first, Logan? Uh, Hebrews twelve two, one of my favorite. Jesus mm. is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Mm. Um, and I take this like He is literally the one that is starting our faith, and He is going to bring our faith to completion and perfection. Again, how humbling is this? Absolutely. This does not negate uh, our work in this. This is to say we are completely surrendering 
to God mm-hmm. in all this. Yeah. And some people go tr- like take that Hebrews passage and be like, well, what it's talking about is like the beginnings of Christianity. Like he's the foundations of Christianity, Christianity. But if it wasn't enough, I mean, Philippians one six also says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a work in you yeah. will bring it to, to completion, completion at yeah. the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, your faith is, has begun. And there's a sanctification process. Like we're not perfect. We're still sinful and we have to fight that daily. Mm -hmm. But God is working in us through the Holy Spirit and he is going to bring us to completion and he will not fail. And you recently preached on Ephesians 1, like you already mentioned, uh, verses Mm -hmm. 13 and 14. I think that's another good text to kind of draw out. Um, Do you want to read that one? Yeah. Um, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance yeah. until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Like we are given the third person of the Holy Spirit or third person of the Trinity yeah. to dwell in us. And he is a seal and guarantee of our salvation that yeah, we such good will news. reach the end, that we will get our inheritance for the purposes of praising and glorifying God. Amen. And again, this particular doctrine, along with the other four, sh- should cause us to worship. Oh, yeah. Be humble and to worship God and thank him for what he has done for us. Right. Yeah, the whole purpose, I mean, maybe not the whole purpose, but the idea of, of this tulip, these five points of Calvinism, is that everything is on God, nothing is on us. We can't take any credit, so God gets all all the glory, all the praise. Yeah, amen. So that's that's the five points of Calvinism under this greater structure. We also call them the, the doctrines of grace as mm-hmm. well. And we should have let out with this, so shame on me, but um, I'm going to at least kind of start landing the plane with this. All this assumes the sovereignty of God, mm-hmm. that God is completely in control of all things. The sixth point of Calvinism. The sixth point of Calvinism. Sometimes for people, yeah. But it, it is really the lead out and, and the ending mm-hmm. of, of this particular conversation. Because when you have a strong view of sovereignty, it helps make sense of what God is doing in salvation. So he's sovereign over all things, but he's also sovereign over the salvation of a soul. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really important another theological doctrine that, again, we... We don't have time to go into scripture regarding the sovereignty of God, but we could easily do that all day. I want to offer just one. Yeah. Fuck. It's, it's one that we've already talked about. It's Ephesians 1.11. It's talking about us and uh, obtaining an inheritance and predestining, uh, predestining us according to God's will. But it says yeah. more broadly that according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will, mm. like we have to understand the sovereignty of God, that he is in control of all things. Nothing is going to be happening uh, with without either his permission or his uh, providence. Yeah. I, I've challenged people, you know, when they start asking me questions about Calvinism, go to, go to Ephesians 1, start there. I mean, I even encourage mm. people not to be uh, self-promoting or whatever. We just spend a lot of time in Ephesians 1 as a church. When I preach through it, go listen to those sermons. Yeah, hopefully that helps make sense of what we're talking about. I mean, even just read it out loud here. Can I just read it for a second? Ephesians one. Just part of it. Blessed be the cool. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
uh, that we should be blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to, as you just mentioned this, according to the purpose of his, his will. Whose will? Not our will. God's will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You see the pattern here. Who's doing the work? His grace, which he lavished. He, he lavished that grace upon us, but it was him who lavished upon us. Getting into verse seven there. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of whose will? Not our will. His, his will. will. According to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. And I could go on and on and on and on. I could do this all day. But the point of that particular exercise is who who's doing the stuff? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Who's giving the grace? Who's giving the mercy? Whose blood was shed for the for our trespasses and our forgiveness? Who? Who? It Was it me? Did I offer anything? Did I contribute an, an ounce of anything to Ephesians 1? No, not a, not a cent, not, a, not an ounce of energy. It was all God. And that is humbling. And that should, when we show up to church, we should be thanking God. We should be praising God. When you go home and you lay down, you should be thanking God. You should be praising God. When you get up in the morning, you should be thanking God. You should be praising God because it was all God. Yeah. And oh man, how forgetful are we? That, like, cause that's absolutely what we should do. And how often yeah. I don't. Yeah, I know, man. I'm such and a yet stooge. there's still more grace. <laughs> yeah. And there's yet more grace, yeah. even more forgetful. We're not praising which he, him. Which, again, going back to Ephesians uh. 1, which he lavished upon us. Mm-hmm. He lavished it upon us. Unreal. All right. So those are the five points of Calvinism. And next time, we will be handling the objections to each point. To each point. Yep, we will. So any final thoughts before uh, we end this podcast? Yeah, I just I would just pray, like you know, for people, you know, that are listening to these podcasts, like truly do go back and read the passages that we've mentioned. Yeah. Cause I'm mentioning verses, read the whole section, read John yeah. six, read John, um, John 10, read Ephesians one, uh, Romans mm. eight, Romans nine, um, read these texts mm-hmm. and really take time to ponder them, um, and reflect on them. And I, I think you will see that Calvinism <laughs> really is just popping off the page in yeah. that way. And I wish we didn't have the term Calvinism. I wish we didn't have tulip too, frankly. Yeah. It's an easy way to remember things, mm-hmm. but it becomes like, I can't believe it. You're like, how could you believe in that? It yeah. seems so. I don't follow John Calvin. Yeah. I follow Jesus, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like that's not the point we're trying to make. Like yeah. we have these categories that are helpful they, in some yeah, ways. True. But they become easy shots, yeah. you know, like uh, objections, you know. Yeah, it's it's not just that the, these scriptures these scriptures are are screaming Calvinism. Really, I truly believe these are screaming those doctrines that are true. Yeah, the idea of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. And, and I want to end by saying this: theology is really important. Mm. Um, you'll hear the objection that all I need is the Bible. Yeah, mm-hmm. Just give me the Bible. And I, and I understand the heart behind that kind of statement. But here's what I would say in response. Everyone is a theologian. Yep. Go back to R.C. Sproul, which we've mentioned several times. He, I think he wrote a book called Everyone is a Theologian. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely right. Everyone's yeah. a theologian. The question is, are you doing it well? Are you doing it poorly? I mean, do you even realize you're doing it? Yeah. You know, 
you're creating theological categories. Those theological categories need to come from somewhere Mm -hmm. and we want it to come from scripture. So Calvinists are not these mighty intellectual thinkers who are just using big theological words. No, not at all. Actually, we're just going to scripture. We're trying to make sense, understand who God is. And what does that mean for his creation? Us in particular, the crown jewel of his creation is image bearers. Yeah. And just a, just one more final thing. The reason that we want to study theology or study these topics in depth, it's it's like it's like trying to get to know your spouse more. You know, mm. you can't mm. just you know you get married, you can't just know the bare minimum. Like you yeah. spend the rest of your life learning more about your spouse. Spouse, yeah. our relationship with God should get deeper. Mm-hmm. It should get more intimate. We should come to a greater understanding of our Lord and Savior. Yeah. That is why we study theology. And it doesn't mean life's easy. It doesn't mean that relationship, it goes well all the time. It doesn't mean you no. don't go through dry seasons. It doesn't mean that sometimes it's like, oh, I just don't want to open my Bible. I'm so busy. We all go through those types of seasons, but we do mm-hmm. want to grow. And we want to be in a community. If you're listening to this, you're not part of a church. You want to be part of a good gospel-centered, gospel-preaching, Bible-preaching church where you can grow with people. And, it, and I'll also add this, Logan. You know, at Redemption Hill Church, we welcome people wherever they're at. Yeah. You know, um, doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a day. Doesn't If you're an unbeliever, thank you for coming and checking us out. If you've been a believer and walking with the Lord faithfully for 40 years, welcome. We, we do this together in community to learn more mm. about God's word, learn more about theology. And um, doesn't mean if, if if you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, I've never heard of tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace. This is all new to me. Great. That's fantastic. I mean, I'm more excited for you than I am for the person walking faithfully for 40 <laughs> years. Like, like, like this is this is good stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're welcome to be on this journey, uh, in particular for, for our folks at Redemption Church. Um, wherever you're at, wherever you're coming from, doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, uh, we get to do this journey together. And we get to learn from one another and challenge one another and grow mm-hmm. with one another. We get to sharpen one another. That's what theology does. Yeah. That's what, Amen. Uh, so anyways... Got a little preachy there at the end, so sorry about that, folks. So that that's part one. We laid it laid it out, laid it on the line. There's one thing that we're really clear about Redemptional Church is like this is we are who we are. Yeah, we're not trying our, to hide the ball. We're not hiding the ball. We are a confessional church. You go read our confession of faith. It is long, it is deep, it is wide, it is good, it is reformed. Uh, we're not hiding anything from you. Unlike most churches these days that tell you that they believe in Jesus and the virgin birth, maybe, and that's about it. Uh, no, we're we're talking about more. We wanna we want you if you're listening here in the Des Moines Metro to come join us and uh, walk with us. And yeah. if you don't know the Lord, and in particular you come, yeah. and I'd be more than happy to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you. And and if you have questions, email us. Yeah, um, or stop us in person. Yeah, totally. All right, so be on the lookout for part two, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for taking interest in this particular podcast. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I think we're on Amazon. I think we're on Google. All those things. Uh, Also, check us out on YouTube. We put them up on there. We don't have videos, but you can still listen to us. So if you're on YouTube all the time, you can check us out there. Be sure to uh, give us five stars, like, thumbs up, all the relevant things that help our algorithm, basically. (laughs) I don't even know that side of the world. (laughs) All hail the almighty algorithm. All hail the almighty algorithm. Well, God bless everyone and peace out. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.